0: This message was recorded at Devoted Leaders, a leadership conference hosted by Christ Central. Christ Central is a family of churches served by an apostolic team led by Jeremy Simpkins. We work with over 275 churches in more than 25 nations and are part of the wider New Frontiers family. For more details about Christ Central, please visit christcentralchurches.org.
1: Tim Keller's little book that's out there on the bookstore called The Art of Self-Forgetfulness and then I don't know if this is the done thing but my own book, Overpowering Nemo from from the point of view that I talk a lot in there about what the pseudo-truth is and how we end up slipping into believing that and then I'd also like to recommend if you're really interested in this topic um, a documentary series that the BBC did which is for one-hour slots that follow on from each other, and it's called The Century of the Self, uh, and it's by Adam Curtis, and that is not a Christian thing at all, but it's very, very interesting and and concurs with what the Christian writers are saying now, though it doesn't mention religion, Christianity in any way. And I'm just going to do a couple of riders before I get into it. Um, One is that I was here yesterday listening to Andy talking about coming out from that place of depression and I just want to say that what I'm saying does not at all contradict what Andy said. I'm talking about the general ethos of our society. Of course there is always a place where we get alongside those who are suffering with mental illnesses, breakdowns and so on but I'm not talking about that. And secondly, being a bit old-fashioned, instead of saying humankind and man, woman, he, she, I'm just going to say man, <laughs> as we did used to at one point in time. So, um, I'm not into being pl- politically correct to that degree. So, I've called this session Christ as Central Question Mark because we like to think that we have Christ as central in our lives and in our churches, but I put the question mark on because we need to look very carefully as to how much he really is central in our personal lives and in our churches. And to do that, I'm going to use the famous misquote of Churchill. You know, everybody's misquoting him at the minute. And the misquote is, the further backward you can look, the further forward you can see, which is not quite what he actually said. But the principle being that if you look back, you can see how things have evolved to where we are now. And you can see where it's going. So I'm going to start by looking back uh, in terms of how we've got to where we are today and then we're going to move on and look at well what is that doing in our churches. So basically you could start anywhere in history but I want to start towards the end of the enlightenment when the industrial revolution was coming in. And during the enlightenment a guy called Rene Descartes famously stood up and said I think therefore I am and during that time man began to reason about the existence of God about his own about man's right to choose about how he could outwork his faith man began to recognize I've got an individualism I'm an individual and the thing of personal rights started to start rising And that time was a whole thing of if we have knowledge, and if we reason, then we can better ourselves. And we came out of that phase in history into that famous stage of the industrial revolution where everything on earth seemed to get invented, uh, one thing after the other. And the cultural and even the literal landscape changed. And some didn't like it. So you got people like Charles Dickens, using his novels such as Hard Times, Great Expectations, A Christmas Carol, to bring warnings of the dangers of seeking after wealth, making money at the expense of others. And the social order began to change, so where before it was the aristocracy and the poor those that just got on with life and the aristocracy, it started changing. People were changing. So we had the the rise of the newly rich, a few becoming rich at the expense of the many who were poor and lived and worked in appalling conditions in in places and situations that William Blake, who wrote at the time various poetry and the famous thing that became Jerusalem called the Dark Satanic Mills. So there was this kind of rapid growth causing rapid societal change that some felt was beginning to impact morals and some felt were beginning to impact well, how we see one another in society. So this age of reason, the, think, the thinking I am, therefore I am, were all, it was all feeding into the rise of what was now becoming capitalism, the way to better oneself and make money. So you've got the thinking I am, the new individualism, and the rise of ways of making money, various inventions, various factors, and so on. And then at that kind of time, in 1859, we've got the famous event where Charles Darwin released his Origin of the Species. And his theory of evolution actually came to be accepted as fact uh, among those who were thinkers and those who had more uh, time and ability to reason these things. It began to be distributed as fact. And so the thinking was beginning to shift a little. The new thinking was that those who believed human life had a purpose were mistaken. Human existence was random. And the new thinking began to be driven by this deterministic thing. It's about the here and now. And it's about what has caused your particular past evolutionary selection. It's about the survival of the fittest. And that we can better ourselves and that we can change our lives it's all about life now, was coming even more to the fore. And making money made a way for that. Making money was increasing at this time. So capitalism starts to now fully come to the fore. And during that time, many now began to question religious beliefs um, because Darwin's theory has seriously challenged those beliefs. So, you've got everything kind of thrown up in the air at that time with some new kind of social values coming in, which were about being individual, making money, and about reason. And then in the late 1880s, 1890s, sorry, we've got Sigmund Freud, who published his psychoanalytical theory. This was based upon the belief that man is a victim of his entire collective circumstances. In particular, the early stages of life and the genetic predetermined instincts. Coming back to Darwin again, Freud was very influenced by Darwin. Freud built upon Darwin's ideas about humans having primal urges and latent tendencies which were held over from primitive species. So psychoanalysis encouraged a person to focus inwards, to recognize the complexity of one's own behavior, and to find the answers by trying to integrate the various aspects of one's own personality. Freud also introduced us to the ego, as well as proposing that sexuality was intrinsically woven into the personality from a young age. So his work and that of his daughter Anna heralded in many other therapies, such as behavioral therapies that were developed by Skinner and humanistic therapies proposed by Carl Rogers. Now in 1961, Martin Lloyd-Jones gave an address at the Royal Albert Hall. You can find this in a book called Knowing the Times. And the address was called, How can we see a return to the Bible? Even in 1961, they were beginning to feel the pressure on the church. During this address, this is what Lloyd-Jones said. He said, why the difference in the condition of our churches today as distinct from what they were 100 years ago? It is due to the loss of the authority of the scriptures. And to what does that due? Do? The substitution of the mind of men and of what is called philosophy for divine revelation. Added to this, there was the Darwinian teaching and then psychology played its part. And in those ways, men began to look at this book not as they had looked on it throughout the centuries as the word of the living God, but as a human word. They began to talk more and more, not about the power of the spirit in the preacher, but of his scholarship, of his knowledge of philosophy, the sciences and psychology. Human reason was put upon the throne, and the very pulpits of the church herself were engaged in undermining the faith of the masses of the people in this book is the word of God. Now, Lloyd Jones was saying that in 1961. Unfortunately, even <coughs> as Lloyd Jones was giving this timely address, the focus of society was still shifting towards what might now be called meism. Psycho- psychoanalysis and the ensuing therapies inspired the study of the inner man, the ego, and man's felt needs. People were led to believe that they are totally autonomous and innately good, that they have the capacity to find the answers to the problems of life for themselves and able to be self-sufficient. There came a growing theory of self, and that theory of self as being preeminent, with how I feel becoming the priority in life, And now, the change in the the locus of self begins to shift from the mind to the emotions. I think, therefore I am, now starts to become, I feel, therefore I am. And the seeds of therapeutic thinking are sown. Carl Truman, in the book I referred to, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, says, the era of psychological man therefore requires changes in the culture and its institutions, practices, and beliefs. Changes that affect everyone. They all need to adapt to reflect a therapeutic mentality that focuses on the psychological well-being of the individual. And ever since the time of Lloyd-Jones' address, Western culture its institutions, its practices, its beliefs, have further changed to adapt every one of us towards the therapeutic. The therapeutic, by the way, meaning kind of well-being of the individual. So we moved through the Industrial Revolution, and I could talk about um, what happened with women after the war and blah, 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 but I've only got whatever I've got in time. So, I'm, I'm just going to jump to the 60s. Because the 60s became a time of heightened individualism, of dropping out. You know, my uncle, he got one of these brilliant minds, He was a member of Mensa, and he dropped out of uni and ended up repairing televisions for the rest of his life. He dropped out. And that's, that was the thing then, you make a statement, You do your own thing. It was the age of the hippie, rebelling against conforming to the norms of society, seeking to promote peace through finding a higher spiritual state, usually by the teachings of Eastern religions. So hence, at that time, you had newly influential people, such as the Beatles, deriving some of their musical ideas from the Eastern mystics. People were now seeking that which brought them personal happiness. And during this time we also had the beginning of the rise of celebrity. I think the Beatles maybe were the first major ones to impact Britain in terms of that. Celebrity and the need to status began to be on the rise. Every young man wanted to be in a band and every young woman wanted to be a singer. The 60s became a decade of many changes in how we approach things, many changes in morality. It was a time which brought about birth control, abortion, the thinking that a woman has a right over her own body, as well as brought in the decriminalization of homosexuality. And as a result now, we've come to have the normalizing of things like promiscuity, homosexuality, cohabitation, abortion, and so on, to the point that traditional values and beliefs have become outdated, intolerant, and bigoted, even to the point that those beliefs are now seen as the immoral beliefs. The norms of our society have been totally turned around. I mean, I was interested watching this, big debate in America about this vote, you know, and they've ousted abortion in many states. And the big outcry against that is that a woman has a right over her own body. There's no reference to the right of the child in the womb. And these were the arguments back in the 60s when abortion was brought in. A woman has a right over her own body. And in the midst of the 60s, meanwhile, on another track, Freud's theories have now been taken on and developed further. First through Freud's um, family, and then out there into those who had worked with Freud and learned from Freud. And they were taken on and developed uh, to further influence not only the psychological field, but the field of commerce and we had the rise of advertising. Advertising managed to do this amazing combination of bringing together reason, individualism, capitalism and psychology to influence the ego to train man to pander to his felt needs. To train man to become satisfied only by that which he desires has personally chosen and pleases him. So I think in my book, I write about when I was a child and I went to the shop for some baked beans, I just asked for a tin of baked beans. There was only like one or two brands. By this time, there's a whole raft of different tins of baked beans you can buy. HP, Cross and Bratwell, Heinz 57, own, own brands, you name it. One has choice, but you are trained by the advertisers to prefer a certain one. Around this time, Abraham Maslow, we you've probably heard of, that developed his model of a hierarchy of needs, which is known loosely as Maslow's pyramid or Maslow's triangle. He worked um, with some of Freud's uh, followers and he developed this hierarchy, suggesting that humans are motivated to strive to have their felt needs met And then having those needs met, they will then strive and reach for the next level in terms of these uh, needs, until it gets to the point at the top of self-actualization, which is the fulfillment of all one's potential, a superior state of being. And these psychological ideas, and those of Freud's, were taken in not only to the advertising world, but now they're starting to be used in the political world to influence how we might vote for this particular party or other. I think one of the people, if you watch the BBC thing, you will, you will see that Tony Blair changed labor significantly by picking up some of these psychological ideas uh, in terms of having knowledge of where to go with his proposals, with his manifesto. So by this point, reason is now being toppled by a need to feel good things, by being autonomous, by consuming, by achieving some degree of status, often by the things that we buy. These were now all coming together to dictate to our daily lives. And so, if we fast-forward a bit further, we hit the technological age of the 80s, when everyone has to have their own personal phone, personal computer, personal space, individual stuff that make us feel good and give us status. The technological age gave us rockets to the moon and the ability to speak to someone at the other side of the world. Technology helps man to stretch what is possible. And the assumption has become that humans can be, do, and go beyond the possible to rewrite reality. The internet and the rise of social media has led to the rise of what I call pseudo-truth. Please see my book for a fuller explanation that which looks and feels like truth but is, in fact, not the truth but lies. Fake news, YouTube stories, articles for self-help even, social media, all feed us with the pseudo-truth constantly. And so we go with what we've been led to believe, and we trust in what is often lies. So, all these aspects of history, of course, have brought us many good things. Nevertheless, the changes in society now mean that man sees himself as the creator of his own world. Now, we are moving into virtual reality as reality, pseudo-reality. Nothing is outside of what is possible for man to create whether that is a driverless car, a man who can give birth, or ABBA as you knew them and not as they are now. (laughs) Now we have moved from I feel, therefore I am, to I feel that I am, therefore I am. We live in an age where the pseudo-truth rules and real truth is obscured. In short, humans are traversing more and more towards seeing themselves as individual gods who can do and create what pleases them and do away with what doesn't please them. The end result leads me to texts such as, as it was in the days of Noah, or the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, or the text everyone did what was right in their own eyes. To use a Martin word, <laughs> trajectory from here is self-destruction towards, I feel that I am not, therefore I am not. And we are seeing that come through now in so many mental health issues, people feeling suicidal and despairing and so on society is not on a good course. So that's kind of how we've got to where we are in a nutshell. Now in 1949, George Orwell wrote of a fictional dystopian society in 1984, his book. Many of you might have had to read it for school purposes and so on but he wrote it in 1949. Now, this is a brief overview of the book. It was a society which had constant propaganda and lies pumped at them through a telescreen that was always on, where history was being constantly rewritten. Language was constantly being redefined to phase out unwanted words and narrow the range of thought. It was a society where you were expected to believe what you were told and never to question the telescreen version of the truth. You were never to openly confront anything, but be tolerant and accept everything without question. You had to think about the things that were presented as truth, but then if you thought of those differently to that supposed truth, it was called double think. And if you were caught in doublethink, then the thought police would know and take you away, never to be seen again. You were canceled out. Big brother was always watching you. So one learned to have an internal big brother watching you. That was the plot. Surely this strikes a chord with where we are now. It is frightening. We are fed with a constant stream of information. Much of it is not based on truth at all. Our dictionaries are constantly being updated with the changing use of words to give us new speak, as it's called, to cover things like gender and ability. If anything is spoken out against, then there's the cancel culture as history is being rewritten. If anything is spoken out against, that's double think if you think differently. Orwell tells us that to double think means the power of holding two contradictory beliefs in one's mind simultaneously and accepting both of them. I call that pluralism. So the church is constantly adapted The church has adapted to and become infected by being part of a psychological society and has tried hard to be culturally relevant, rather than standing firm in her distinctives to more and more display an alternative <coughs> culture. We have believed so much that is pseudo-truth, that which feels true, so it must be true, yet in fact is a lie. This present culture has arisen out of the pseudo-reality of how we've come to live now, creating our own world with our own self at its center. Today, the core workings of our Western society are therapeutic in every area. Everything has to relate to our well-being because how people feel should take preeminence. Political policies have to take account of our right to choose, our right to be led by who we are. And who we are is based upon who we feel. So I no longer tick a box when I'm filling a form in, according to male or female, what I am biologically. I now have to tick a box based on who I feel I am out of at least six options, including other. Is it no wonder that Keir Starmer cannot answer the question what is a woman? Whatever he says is going to be the wrong answer. Hmm? What happened there? The focus has subtly become a desire for personal happiness. Trevin Wax says this the church is transformed into a place to help people find personal fulfillment. The belief that God wants me as an individual to be happy despite what the Bible might say about what is right or wrong. What we are actually meant to know is a self-forgetful joy in God despite any surrounding circumstances. Not a self-centered happiness that is derived from the surrounding circumstances working in our favor. So a guy called Os Guinness wrote a book called Prophetic Untimeliness a few years ago. I don't know if it's still available. And this is what he said. A new evangelicalism is arriving in which therapeutic self-concern overshadows our knowing God. Spirituality displaces theology. End times escapism crowds out day-to-day discipleship. Marketing triumphs over mission. References to opinion polls outweigh reliance on biblical exposition. Concerns for power and relevance are more obvious than the concern for piety and faithfulness. Talk of reinventing the church has replaced prayer for revival. And the characteristic evangelical passion for missionary enterprise is overpowered by the all-consuming drive to sustain the multiple business empires of the booming evangelical subculture. What an indictment. The therapeutic has invaded our church life and structures to the degree that it is overturning the very truth it's founded upon. There is now a much more inward-looking focus. The worship has become, how does it make me feel? What is going on in me? The songs are about how I feel. Even the sermons can be geared into how we feel. Any pastoral ministry has become about how people feel. Even things like how we choose our leaders and our staff members can be based around, well, how do we feel? We no longer challenge and admonish. We only are tolerant and care and encourage lest we hurt people's feelings. Subtly, The pseudo-reality has taken over and the truth plainly written in the Bible has been airbrushed to create a better-looking truth. The good news of the therapeutic gospel is that you are not as bad as you think you are. Of course, in reality, we are at heart those who are worse than we think we are. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Hence, church has become a place where I, as an individual, choose to go. And hopefully, I can shape what it looks like. I can derive my state of well-being from being there. I can ask myself, what has the meeting done for me? What do I want God to do for me? I can even outwork any of my altruistic tendencies through my giving. I can support those things that I think should be supported. <coughs> I, can, I can give in to the church and so long as I feel I can help shape that, then I might feel my money is well spent. Church becomes the way I can shape my sense of worth, happiness and good deeds. In worship, the worship times, our songs can become all about me. Listen to some of the words of some of the songs. The sermons can invite us to get to know Jesus and he will meet all your needs. And yes, of course, in his marvelous grace, God often does meet our needs. But we can often be pitching the benefits of the gospel and not the gospel itself, which tells us that we are objects of his wrath and have need to repent. The freedom we often speak of or sing about, we assume is freedom from our problems, when actually the promise is of the freedom from the curse of sin and death. And it's the promise of freedom to walk with him. Shrevin Wax says, we desire what God can give us rather than God himself. And therefore, our contributions into the meeting, they can become all about our feelings. The subjective has taken precedence over the objective. Even prophecy has often become about what I subjectively feel God is saying, even if that overrides the objective truth. And of course, it should always make us feel good. Real prophecy, sometimes means conveying something that we might not want to hear at that point, yet when we do hear it, it benefits us as we receive it. The real truth is that subjective feeling should always be measured against the objective truth of God's written word. Pastoral ministry has become that which seeks to solve, solve people's problems to get alongside and help them in this time of need. It's become about identity, what I feel I might be, not what God says we are. Pastoral ministry should not be about adapting the world's practices, nor about simply giving good advice, but it's about making disciples who know their God. We think that life owes us We ask questions when we don't see clearly, when we're having a problem, we ask questions such as, why me? What did I do to deserve this? And we feel the receivers of injustice. And then we begin to question God, seeing that seemingly these things don't happen to others. And then we blame God eventually. Such is our sense of indignation at what life has thrown to us that we expect God to rectify what we perceive as his failings. Maybe the question should be, why not me? I have, as Jeremiah says, a deceitful heart beyond cure. Maybe I do deserve these things and I need to see that. But then I can stand back and marvel at the grace of God who stepped in on my behalf to clothe me with his righteousness. Jesus has become a way of gaining a greater sense of self worth, of finding others who will understand my problems, who will help me. It's become a way, he has become a way of improving my life, my finances, my marriage and so on, my general lot in life. So, where do we go? It's time now to turn around from allowing meism to infect us, particularly as leaders, and then model that to others around us. It's time to stop trying to be culturally relevant and realise that we're in cultural opposition, in fact, and turn back to living in and speaking out the real truth turn back to our distinctives, despite what our minds tell us, we should not live with double think. Orwell in his 1984 book says this, there was the truth and there was untruth. And if you clung to the truth, even against the whole world, you were not mad. We might be a minority seemingly, But if we cling to the truth, even against the whole world, we are not mad. Our knowledge of biblical truth is as crucial now as it has ever been. For the Christian world, the real world is located in and through Jesus Christ. God is not my own personal inner God. Though he dwells within by his spirit, the Christian God is the God of all history, the one who created the whole earth and everything in it. God is not only within, but outside of me too. And he reigns as the sovereign one, not the inner self. We must return to the biblical truth regarding the self. Colossians 3 tells us, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There was even a joke last night based on that text. We need to get back to that. I have died and my life is now hidden with Christ in God. We need to return to being real community in an increasingly individualized society because we do not live for ourselves. Galatians 2.20 tells us, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We must throw off being an inward looking people and grasp the notion again of community. Developing a community thinking, belonging in community in a bodily present way rather than just a digital way. We must have a biblical morality driven by objective truth and not pseudo truth and feelings based morals. We have behaviours that are determined by doctrinal truths and not by felt needs. In short, the church needs to become radically anti cultural in turning away from the therapeutic nature of our society and becoming more aware of the need to put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Again, The the verses in Colossians. Our new self is hidden with Christ in God, is sharpened and made more like Him by being in community with others who are on the same path. We are to reflect the fact that we are built together as God's temple, not that we are just a collection of empathetic individuals. So, no more should we be living just for today, as the world does. We do not follow Darwin's ideas, nor Freud's ideas, where we're just making the most of this life, trying to find answers within ourselves, trying to better ourselves and making money and so on. Rather, we are a community of people who look at God's big picture, painted right through the whole Bible, And we see his promise of a kingdom growing and filling the whole earth. We see a city coming out of heaven that one day we will see even more and be a part of. We live now in the light of that that is to come. There is purpose to our lives. So we live trusting in that which does not come from what this world has to offer. So in our churches, the goal is not for a people who are whole. The goal is for a people who are in intimate relationship with God, who makes them more and more whole, who changes them from one degree of glory to another, day by day. We must resist the modern-day thrust to preach, teach, and practice a therapeutic gospel we must challenge our own thinking, our mindset, and not allow the world's ways of thinking to press us into its mold, as we read about in Romans 12. We turn away, we don't conform. And as a result of turning away and not conforming and speaking out the truth, we are transformed by the spirit and his ways. Worldly thinking is individualistic, self-centered, celebrity-minded, consumerist, and divisive. Biblical thinking is community-minded, self-sacrificing, humble, (coughs) serving, and uniting. It is a time to wake up. It is a time to shake out of the sleepwalking in these cultural It is a time to come out of our sleepwalking in anti-Christian beliefs that we've allowed ourselves to do for so long. But folks, I do not believe in some dystopian end to our society nor to our churches because I have hope in the gospel of Christ. I have hope for a new creation. And this time that we've had of in between and so on, the things that we feel are changing since the pandemic, the wake-up call is because God is calling us now as his church to throw off the things that hinder us and stand again in the authority that he has given us to proclaim the real gospel and to make wholehearted disciples for him. So I do see this time as a time where we are standing on the edge of a new era. An era whereby the church wakes up from her sleepwalking away from truth and arises to courageously declare it. This could be an era in which the church begins to rise, rising up in faith and in her distinctiveness. It's not just about waving flags in a meeting such as the ones we've had this morning. It is about rising in our distinctiveness and of course that mean might well mean kickback. But that's what made the apostles of old distinctive and thereby the faith went everywhere. This could be the church's era. This could be a time which ushes in the beginning of real revival, which I still pray to see in my life day. So, folks, that's only a very, very nutshell overview. Um, But I'm going to end there. So, prepare to take comments or questions. I'm not promising I can answer all your questions. (laughs) Mm Can you just give the names of those two books you mentioned at the beginning? Yeah, Uh, one of them is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's on the bookstore out there by Carl Truman. The other one is Counterfeit Gospels by Trevin Wax. I'm not sure if that's out there. Thank you. I don't think I can answer that fully. Um, if I could, I think all the team would be waiting for me to tell them. <laughs> uh, but the megachurch mega culture is an example of, of what I said, the trend to be culturally relevant and absorbing into it all these uh, worldly values. I think, I think the main thing is for us to get away from Sunday as being the day. And to be living every day in what it is to have real faith. Um, you know, so if that means my neighbour you know, my neighbour has got some of these questions, you know, he, might, he might say to me, well, I think they should keep abortion. That means I need to speak out. And one of the things that's happened that I kind of briefly mentioned is we've been schooled to not speak out. And some people don't really know why they don't speak out, but that's been the cultural thing. You tolerate things, like Orwell was saying. You tolerate things, and you might think them, but you don't say them. It's time we said it. And then uh, my neighbor might not speak to me again. That might be the result. But then in another instance, we might find that we are drawing people in. Um, So I think it's time to get back to our individual living out this stuff and not pinning it all on the Sunday meeting. Um, It doesn't really matter how we do our meetings if we're honoring God, I don't think.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's
1: cultural that's the other word of the use of cultural isn't it cultural as in um, and I'm talking about the kind of imbibing culture and using the term in that way but I, th- I just think we have to just begin to live it and we, we share the best we can and if someone doesn't understand well we have to lose some of the Christian jargon I'm convinced of that In talking to our friends and our neighbours. But we do have a gospel. And we can't skirt round it trying to look for other words to describe it. We just have to say, this is where we are without God. This is what God done through his son Jesus Christ. And this is where we can be as a result of that. Um, But I think, yeah, the thing about the apostles, it was difficult for them. Each part of history, if you look, it would have been difficult. But the times when real, there's been real influx into the church has been when they've met with persecution, when they've stood up to the prevailing culture, when they've spoken out. I mean, I was reading in Acts where, I think it was Peter and one of the others, they were arrested because of the lame man and told not to speak this name again. And then they were let go, but then they were caught again speaking the name Jesus. So they took them away and whipped them and flogged them and let them go. And then it says, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer in his name. Do we know anything of that in our generation? Yeah. Well, hopefully, some of the different uh, people like Blesan or African brothers and sisters that are in my maybe they're able to help us pick up on the mistakes we're making, on the errors we're following. I mean, equally, those nations will have their own cultural things that they're fighting with. I mean, I talked to Joseph and they have this idea about spirits, you know, and they have pluralism in a different way to do with various demons and spirits. And they, they're trying to appease them, and yet worshipping the Christian God. They have their own cultural battle. And I can't comment on that, because I've never been in that environment. So we can go there and clearly see that. But when they come to us, they should probably clearly see the rubbish that we are affected with. So hopefully they can help us. That is one upside of having a diverse uh, Lord of Nations in our church. Yes,
0: so Yeah. because our kids, like 20-year-old, 20-plus, 20 20, kids, have that system on yeah. basis, day after day after day. And so,
1: Well, I see that as well, Paul. I mean, for instance, in the area of tr- child-rearing. Uh, you and I grew up in an in a arena where it was okay to spank your kids. Uh, well, there was still that element of your discipline in your kids. But it, as it's progressed, the youngsters now bringing their kids up. It's, it's that subliminal culture that says you let them be who they are. You let them find, their, you know, find this and find that. And you, that, the biblical thing of training up a child in the way he should go is going out. And I think we have to therefore keep reinforcing biblical truth in every area of life. That's just one example. So that we stick with the Bible, but then that makes us look different, yeah? So my daughter, uh, grew up in the church, even though she's not at the moment churching with us. And she has four uh, teenage children now. And she's experienced some problems with one or two of them because they are still, she's been, been bringing them up in a similar manner, a bit looser, but a similar manner to how we brought her up. But all her kids' friends are in this. Well, you have to let them be who they are. You let them. You let them have some rope. We let them find out. You let them make those mistakes. And she's well. I don't. You know. I'm not going to let my daughter get in with a crowd who are taking drugs. And the mother of one of them children said, "But you have to let them try these things." That's the difference. She's up against it because she's feeling the the pull of two worlds the one that she grew up in in the church and the one that is now and I think we have to be aware of these things, no, you train up the child, you know, so I've tried to support her and endorse where she's going with it um, but that, that understanding
0: reflects in the church as well doesn't it? Yeah. I hear increasingly in yeah. considered yeah,
1: yeah so we and I think, you know, we, they're going to have access to more and more things beyond our imagination at the minute. You know, um, when I was a child, um, I used to enjoy science fiction things. Um, and on one particular thing, I can't remember what it was, they had this big square thing. And when they wanted to speak to somebody, a picture came on the big square thing. And they could see this person, and this person was like, you know, on another... another country and that was science fiction. (laughs) And when you think about, I know it's a bit of a laugh, but when you think about the Abba as you saw them, not as you see them now, where are we going? So reality is getting distorted. So we have to be aware that our kids are living in this distortion of reality, and we have to keep bringing them back to the reality is based in Jesus Christ and what He says in His Word. Keep training them up in all these different matters. I think we're about, do we finish about now? Yeah. Do you want
0: to? Thanks, I think great to so give Jimmy a round of applause. I think we should finish by praying. So feel free to, if you want to join me in standing, but otherwise stay seated. But I think we just need to pray. We need to pray for wisdom. It's very easy to be, uh, to go with the flow or it's very easy to be reactionary. We need to ask God in every circumstance, how, how do we combat the world in which we live and how do we work with it? Father, we, we stand here before you, Lord, and you know Lord, you know our society, you know our backgrounds, you know the world in which we live and in which our children live. And so, Lord, we as, as leaders, we pray for your wisdom, and we pray for your courage. Lord, you are the center of it all. Lord, it's not about us, it's not about me, it's about you. It's all about you, and, and, but that is so alien to our culture, and yet, Lord, it's at the center of the gospel. It's all about Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray, help us, Lord, that we don't throw that away. that We don't deviate, Lord, from what is truth and embrace pseudo-truth. And yet, Lord, we need to love those around us. We need to love our neighbours. We need to love those who we disagree with, love those who would uh, be uh, quite violent towards us in one sense. And also we need your wisdom, Lord, as leaders, as we try and help our churches. Lord, speak to us by your spirit. Help us not to just imbibe culture by osmosis and find that our pastoring is just therapeutic. Lord, we want to believe in your power. And we want to believe in your truth. Lord, it's your truth that deals with people's lives. And so, Lord, we pray for that. But Lord, as we witness as the church... Lord, we want to see the name of Jesus glorified, and we want to see your power at work, Lord, in the church, even if that provokes a reaction. And so, Lord, we pray, will you be with us and come on us in power increasingly as we go from here. And so, Lord, we thank you for, for this morning. We thank you for Ginny. And, Lord, we pray, help us as we go out from here. In Jesus' name. Amen.